Section 35 of Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Lane. Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages by Wilhelm Wagner. Section 35. Part 3, Section 1, Chapter 1, The Children of Haman. Haman. Safe and victorious, Karl the Great, Charlemagne, king of the Franks, had returned from Hungary. He had conquered the wild Avars, destroyed their strongholds, and come back to Paris with much booty. High festival was being held in the royal palace, for the king was busied dividing the newly conquered country into counties and baronies amongst those of his warriors whom he thought best fitted for such responsible charge. While thus employed, Lord Hook of Dordogne came forward and asked the king if he had forgotten the faithful services rendered him by Count Haman of Dordogne, that he had not mentioned his appointment to any of the new fiefs. Karl at once replied that he had not forgotten Haman, but he considered that bold warrior had already fiefs enough and to spare. Indeed, if he gave him more, it would only make him think himself as powerful as his master and might even tempt him to throw off his allegiance to the Frankish crown. He is a faithful vassal, sire, answered Hug, as true as a sword to its sheath. But if he is given a lower position than meaner men, he may in good truth forget his oath of allegiance, and fight for his rights. Did he do so, he would not lack aid from many a trusty comrade. As he spoke, the hero touched his sword significantly. The king's wrath was so roused by the boldness of this speech that he drew his sword and next moment the good lord's head was severed from his body at one blow. The courtiers drew back in speechless horror, and Haman, who came in at that instant, asked one of the bystanders what had happened. When he heard the reason of the king's murderous deed, he turned sharp round upon his heel, and went out without further word or greeting. As soon as he reached his own castle, he gathered his friends about him, and declared war against his liege lord. No great battle was fought, but continual conflict raged between the contending parties. The country was laid waste, and the peasantry suffered terribly. Haman was able to move about from place to place with such incredible swiftness that people began to say he rode a magic horse, gifted with the speed of lightning and the wit of man. The war lasted for years, till at last King Karl came with a large army and besieged the castle of the rebel count. One morning, when matters were in this position, Haman went to the stables as usual with a feed of oats for his favourite horse, but the stall was empty, the good steed Bayard was gone. Haman was in despair. He was just considering whether it was worthwhile carrying on such a hopeless war, when his cousin Malagus, a small, insignificant-looking man with a long beard, came to him, and told him that he knew for certain that the devil had carried off the horse, and had hidden it, in Mount Vulcanus, which is near the mouth of hell. He further promised to go and fetch it, in spite of all difficulties. Then, without waiting for a word of thanks or warning, the little man turned and left the count. When he got outside the castle gate, Malagus pulled a small bag of powdered hellebore from his pocket. He sprinkled a good deal of it in the air, and the wind carried it over the besiegers' camp. A general fit of sneezing suddenly infected the whole army, while the men-at-arms were thus sneezing and calling out God bless you to each other, 
Malagus quietly walked through their lines and pursued his journey to Mount Vulcanus. He reached the foot of the great mountain in safety and saw smoke and flames issuing from its top. He at once went in search of the ruler of the world of fire, greeted him courteously and introduced himself as a great necromancer who had come to offer his valuable services to his satanic majesty. The devil answered sarcastically that he was accustomed to hear the followers of the black art vaunt their powers and wisdom, but, as he was curious to see what the stranger could really do, he would give him a chance of showing off. You must know, fellow, he continued, that I have always hitherto ridden on the storm wind, but I find that too great an exertion now. I am grown too old for that sort of thing. So I looked out for a good horse and managed to find one fleet enough to satisfy me. I therefore took possession of it and brought it here. I thought that I should now be able to ride through the world of men more at my ease than before. But, and here he sighed deeply, and blue flames issued from his mouth as he did so, if I were not the devil myself, I should say that that horse was an incarnation of Satan. He will not even let me mount him. I have therefore put him into the volcano, hoping to tame him in that manner. I have kept awake for months to look after this work myself, but hitherto without effect. Will you take my place while I enjoy a little nap? Well spoken, great king, said Malagus, but should I not be able to watch the effect on the horse better if I were close to it? Let me therefore beg you to withdraw the fire and smoke for a few minutes, that I may go down into the heart of the mountain and enter upon my duty. Perhaps also the horse may be more easily induced to obey if he gets a breath of fresh air. Satan consented to do as he was asked. He climbed to the top of the mountain accompanied by Malagus, and ordered the spirits of the netherworld to hold back the flames. As soon as the intense heat had cooled down, the necromancer descended into the abyss and took up his position near the horse. Then, as if by accident, he threw what looked like a handful of ashes up in the air. But it was really a sleeping powder. In another moment, the Prince of Hell was sound asleep, and snoring so loud that the mountain trembled at the sound, and ignorant men thought there was an earthquake. Malagus now approached the horse, which snapped and kicked at him viciously, but no sooner had he whispered the word, Bayard, than the creature pricked up its ears, and when he added, Your master Haman has need of you, it became gentle as a lamb, and allowed him to lead it to the upper world. To Haman, cried Malagus, springing on its back, and the horse, neighing for joy, set off with the speed of the wind, over hill and dale, heath and morass. At the sound of the whinny, the Prince of Darkness awoke out of his sleep, and at once understood what had happened. Without loss of time, he flung himself astride of a storm cloud, and hurled a thunderbolt after the fugitives. But Malagus quietly said, Abracadabra, at the same time holding up his crucifix. The thunderbolt fell harmless to the ground. But Lucifer was so much startled by the sight of the cross, that he tumbled off his cloud, and, falling to the earth, broke his leg, and from that day forward he has had a limp in his gait. Meanwhile, Count Haman was in sore distress. He was hunted like a wild beast from place to place. His men were all dead or else had deserted him. 
he was alone and desolate. One day, as he rode through a wood on a wretched broken-down hack, listening bitterly to the bay of the bloodhounds and the hollow of the hunters who pursued him, he saw a rider gallop into the clearing in front and exclaimed in joy, Malagus, cousin Malagus, and Bayard, faithful Bayard, my misery is at an end now. Scarcely had he uttered these words when his pursuers were upon him. He sprang on Bayard's back, swung his sword, and faced his foes. He and his horse fought together, and but few of his antagonists lived to tell the tale of that day's work. Haman's evil fortune now changed to good. Friends came to his aid, and many castles and strongholds fell into his hands. The paladins of the great king avoided giving him battle, and the war seemed as if it might go on forever. The proud king longed for peace, and at last sent ambassadors to his disobedient vassal, offering to restore all his fiefs, and to pay him four times the weight in gold of the murdered hook of Dordogne. Count Roland was sent at the head of the embassy. Haman received the messengers with all honour, especially his old friend Roland, but when he heard the terms offered by Karl, he said that the king's expiation for the murder must be six times the weight of his victim, and that he must further give his sister, Aya, to Haman in marriage. These terms were at first rejected by the king, but afterwards he consented, partly because the country needed peace, and partly, it was said, because the fair princess Aya used her influence with her brother to that end. So peace was at length concluded, Count Haman was restored to his former rank and dignity, and was married to the princess. After the wedding, the newly married couple retired to their castle of Pierre-le-Pont, where they lived for some time in love and unity. But Haman's was too active a disposition to be content with an idle life for long. He thirsted for glory, and to do great deeds, so he crossed over the Pyrenees into Spain, a country where the Christians and heathen Moors kept up a constant internecine war. For the first few years, Count Haman used to return home from time to time, to see his wife and children. But when the fortune of war led him further south, he stayed away altogether, and seemed to have forgotten his beautiful home and all that it contained. Reynold and his brothers. Countess Aya mourned him as dead, and expended all her love on her four sons, whom she educated with the greatest care and who rewarded her for her pains by growing up into wise and stately men. Reynold, the youngest, and his father's image, was taller and stronger than his brothers, and a better swordsman than anyone about Pierre-le-Pont. He had inherited much of his father's quick temper, but to his mother he was always gentle and biddable. The four lads, Richard, Adelhart, Wickhart, and Reynold, had already shown their prowess in the field, when a messenger came to Pelopont to say that Count Haman was lying sick at an inn at the foot of the Pyrenean hills, and near a place where hot mineral springs were to be found. He wanted his wife to come and nurse him. Aya prepared to obey her husband without a moment's delay, and set out, accompanied by her sons. On her arrival at the inn, she hastened to embrace her husband and present her sons to him. The three elder lads embraced their sick father tenderly, but Reynold hung back. Who is this broken-down old man? he cried. It cannot be my father, for he is a great hero, and that man does not look much of a warrior. I wonder if he will try about with me. Boy, said Haman, standing up straight, do you not know me for your father? Look at this ring which your mother gave me years ago. 
and at these scars which are gained in battle. And, continued the countess, does not my love for him bear witness that he is your father? Yes, mother, cried Reynold, I recognize him now. And so saying, he clasped his father in his arms and squeezed nearly all the breath out of his body. Ah, this one is my son, and no mistake, said Haman. He was cut out of the same quarry. Aya and her sons were anxious to hear all that the Count had done and seen since they had met last. So Haman told them all that had befallen him, and ended by saying that he brought home great wealth. This wealth he intended his three elder sons to divide equally amongst them, while his youngest son was to have his good sword Flamberg and his horse Bayard, if he could manage to ride it. Reynold did not in the least doubt his powers of riding anything, and begged his father, mother, and brothers to come and see him mount his new steed. They followed the lad into the stable. Reynold went straight up to Bayard, and seizing the halter in one hand, was about to mount when the horse caught his coat between its teeth and threw him on the ground. The bold warrior, ashamed of his fall, sprang to his feet, and next moment was seated in the saddle. There was a fierce struggle for mastery, which ended in the victory of Reynold. After a wild and dangerous ride, when Bayard once more stood in its stall, Haman went up to the noble animal and said, Bayard, this is my son, your future master. The horse seemed to understand, for it laid its head gently against Reynolds' breast, as though to acknowledge his mastery. Count Haman was soon strong enough to return to Pelopont with his family. Shortly after his arrival there, he heard that the king, who had lately been crowned emperor at Rome, intended to confer the honour of knighthood on his son and heir, Prince Ludwig, and on several squires of noble birth. Haman and his sons at once determined to go to court on this occasion. A great tournament was held before the emperor knighted the young men, and each and all of the candidates showed himself worthy of the honour about to be bestowed on him, more especially Reynold, whose prowess brought down endless acclamations. After the ceremony of knighting the young nobles was over, Ludwig was crowned king, and named his father's successor in the empire. The young king's first act was to distribute fiefs to the new-made knights, save and accept to the brothers alone. These he passed over entirely. He did not even invite them to the feast, and to all appearance the day of general rejoicing was to be a fast day for them. Reynold thought it too bad, so he walked into the royal kitchen and helped himself to all he needed for himself and his brothers. The reason of this extraordinary conduct on Ludwig's part was easy to guess. He was jealous of the superior strength and prowess Reynold had displayed in the lists. Above all, he could not forget the fall he had met with at his hands. He confided his dislike of Reynold to his favourite Ganelon, a fawning sycophant, and told him that he wanted to rid himself and the country of him whom he chose to regard as his enemy. Ganelon at once had a plan to propose. He said that Ludwig, who was famous for his skill in playing chess, should challenge Adelhart, one of the brothers, to play a game with him, each player to stake his head to the other. Reynold would be sufficiently punished in Ganelon's eyes by the pain his brother's death would cause him. Ludwig agreed to the plan with alacrity. Adelhart, on receiving the challenge, declined to play on such terms, saying that if he won, he could not raise his hand against the life of his future liege lord. But Ludwig would not listen to any excuse, saying he would have him proclaimed a coward if he did not consent. So the young hero gave way, much against his will, 
A few minutes later, the two men were seated opposite each other before a chessboard, while three of the courtiers, who had been chosen umpires, stood beside the table and watched the players. Five games were to be played. The chessmen on the one side were made of gold, those on the other of silver. Ludwig, who played with the golden chessmen, had the first move. The five stipulated games were played one after the other, and in each of the five Ludwig was checkmated. The umpires were silent. The king swept the pieces together impatiently, and when Adelhart said he had only played for the sake of his life and honour, that the head of his king was sacred in his eyes, Ludwig caught up the chessboard and flung it in his face with such force that the blood flowed from his mouth and nose and stained his garments. The hero instantly rose and withdrew. As he crossed the courtyard, his brother Reynold hastened to meet him and asked what was the matter. On learning what had taken place, the younger brother was very angry. He gave orders that all should be got ready for their departure, and sent a servant to tell his father and brothers to come down to their horses. Then, turning to Adelhart, he said he would fetch him the prize he had won, signing to his brother to follow him. He at once directed his steps to the throne room, where the emperor was seated with his knights and nobles about him. Ludwig and the umpires were there also. Reynold advanced to the throne and told Karl the whole story, asking the umpires if it were not so. Two of them were afraid and held their peace, but the third boldly avowed the truth. Reynold, upon this, drew his sword Flamberg and with one stroke severed Ludwig's head from his body. Almost before the spectators could draw breath, the brothers had left the room. On reaching the courtyard, they at once mounted their horses and rode away, accompanied by Haman and the rest of their party. They were pursued on the instant. The men-at-arms came up with them outside the town gates, and battle ensued. From the first there seemed to be very little chance for Count Haman and his sons. They had but a few men-at-arms to support them, and the enemy's numbers increased every minute. Their men were at last all slain, and so were all their horses except Bayard, which bore bold Reynold here, there, and everywhere with equal speed and safety. At length, seeing that further contest was useless, Reynold called to his father and brothers to mount behind him on Bayard. The three brothers lost no time in obeying him, but Haman was so hemmed in by the press of people that he could not move. Although bearing a fourfold burden, Bayard galloped away as lightly and easily as if he had had nothing on his back. Haman, meantime, yielded himself prisoner to Bishop Turpin, the bishop promising that his life should be spared. But the emperor refused to be bound by Turpin's promise and ordered that Haman should be publicly hung for the offence his son had committed. The bishop's entreaties were vain. It was not until Roland and the other paladins threatened to leave his service if he persisted in ordering Haman's death that the emperor gave way and set his prisoner free after making him swear to deliver his sons into his hands on the first opportunity. With the prospect of the gallows before his eyes, Haman took the oath demanded of him. Meanwhile, the brothers journeyed rapidly through the broad lands of France. Nowhere could they find an abiding place, for they were outlaws, whose life was forfeited if they fell into the emperor's hands. At length they came to Safaret, a Moorish chieftain, with whom they made friends, and to whom they swore fealty. They remained with him three years, serving him well, but when, at the expiration of that time, they asked for the pay he had promised but never given, the Moor, who thought them unable to defend their rights, refused to listen to the request. So Reynold, growing impatient, cut off his head 
It was certainly an effectual way of ending the argument, but it necessitated immediate flight on the part of the brothers. This time they turned for protection to Ivo, prince of Tarasconia, the mightiest opponent of Saffaret. The prince received them with every mark of honour, and with their help gained many victories over his enemies. But when he heard of the imperial ban under which they lived, Ivo called his council together and asked what was to be done. Some of his advisers wanted him to get rid of the brothers as quickly as possible, while others said that it would be well to court the emperor's favour by delivering the outlaws into his hand. But the greater number were of opinion that the best thing to do would be to bind the heroes by some strong tie to the princely house. This last piece of advice was the one followed by Ivo, who gave Reynold his only daughter Clarissa to wife and appointed him and his brothers a residence by the sea. There a strong fortress called Montalban was built, which became the chief stronghold of the principality. On one occasion the emperor's forces besieged it for a whole year, and then had to withdraw baffled. Look, cried Richard, looking down from the battlements, the imperial eagle flutters away into the forest with a broken wing. Up, Reynold, and after it, that we may send it home like a plucked goose. I have something else to do, answered his brother thoughtfully. Seven years have passed over our heads since we saw our good mother. The longing to see her again gnaws at my heart. I must go and visit her, were it to cost me my life. His brothers agreed to go with him. So they armed themselves cap a pie, drew long grey pilgrims' dresses over their armour, and set out for Castle Pierre-le-Pont. They got there safely, and were received with the greatest joy by their mother, who could not do enough to show them how happy their coming had made her. The Chamberlain, who had taken them into the presence of the Countess Aya, soon discovered who they were, and determined to betray them. He went at once to his lord, Count Haman, told him who the supposed pilgrims were, and reminded him of his oath to the Emperor. Haman was very angry, and felt inclined to slay the Chamberlain there and then, but refrained. After taking counsel with himself, he made up his mind that the best thing he could do would be to take his sons prisoner and march them off to the Emperor giving them, however, an opportunity of slipping away before they reached Paris. So he called his men-at-arms to follow him and went to his wife's apartments. Aya, seeing them crossing the court, would have hidden her sons, but they refused to hide, and throwing off their pilgrims' robes, prepared to defend their lives to the last. Reynolds' great strength served him in good stead. He fought so furiously that the men-at-arms fell back. Haman alone stood firm. Reynolds swung his sword, but his mother clung to him, entreating him to remember that it was his father who stood before him. Reynolds at once put up his sword, but disarmed his father and took him prisoner. The man that would have delivered his own children to the executioner's axe shall go to his friend the emperor in a guise that befits his knightly character, said Reynolds. The men-at-arms stood so much in awe of the young man's prowess and strong arm that they promised implicit obedience. Reynold, therefore, sent one of them to fetch an ass. When it was brought, he placed the count upon it and bound him to the saddle. Then, calling a boy, he placed the reins in his hands and bade him lead the prisoner to Paris. The count, however, had not so far to go after all, for meeting some of the imperial troops on the way, he was set at liberty, mounted on a horse, and taken back to Pierre-le-Pont. The brothers were enjoying themselves in their old home, when the emperor's troops arrived before the gates of the castle, Reynold was alone with his mother when the order to surrender was given by the invaders, 
The young man snatched up his sword, but his mother silently pointed to the gates, which were already thrown open. She then dressed him hastily in his pilgrim's robes, and led him out of the castle by a secret door. Having done this, Aya returned to seek, and if it might be, save her other sons. But she found them prisoners, and bound, and in the hands of their enemies. She wept, and wrung her hands, for she knew that she was powerless to help them. End of section 35. Recording by Roy Lane.